Welcome into the Housing Hour. This is Kevin Ray. Thank you guys for joining us. And today I have a very special guest with me. Um, on the phone here, I have Jess Edwards. Uh, she is with the University of North Carolina. Uh, she was a student there. She also uh, graduated from Georgia Tech. So she has multiple degrees. She's a PhD in epidemiology. Um, what exactly is your title? Just first, welcome into the show. Thanks, Kevin. I'm an assistant professor at UNC, and I'm an infectious disease epidemiologist. Wow. Well, I guess that would, would that probably be uh, important to what's going on in America right now, kind of what, what it is that you do every day? Yeah, I mean, my day job before this all happened focused on how we learn from incomplete and messy and messy data to respond to the HIV pandemic. And now, obviously, with recent events, a lot of that has shifted over to how we respond to the COVID-19 pandemic. Yes. All right. Well, then we're talking to the right person. And, you know, right now where we are, we're, we're, we're talking on Monday, um, Monday, March 16th. And this is unprecedented territory. I mean, this is nothing we've ever seen in terms of we have multiple layers of things happening. And from a market standpoint, that's not what we're going to talk about on this show, but that's something that's happening. But the most important thing that we need to get our arms or our collective arms around is this virus and how we can most effectively uh, kind of operate on a daily basis. So uh, we were talking off air a moment and we were trying to determine sort of what, what is the best message? What's the, the most important thing to tackle? And that revolved around how contagious this is. Um, can you first just start, just tell us what this virus is and give us a little history about the Corona virus. Cause it's a, there's, there's, it's not just one virus, right? Right. The coronavirus is a family of viruses that includes some viruses that cause the common cold. About four of those strains, I think, cause common colds every year. And it also includes things like SARS and MERS, two recent outbreaks we've seen in the past 20 years or so. So obviously the common cold is a much more mild virus that we see. We've all probably had that multiple times per year, whereas SARS and MERS were, in fact, very deadly viruses with high mortality rates. This specific coronavirus was identified in December of 2019. They think it started circulating even back as far as November of 2019. And as you know, has since spread around the world. Right, yeah. And this, you talked about the MERS and the SARS, and let's talk about the difference between those that we've already identified um, and this one and some of the differences, because I think it's important when people start to hear, oh, this is just, you know, this is something that was, was, you know, this mortality rate or that mortality rate, whatever, or how contagious it was, or can you still, can you get it if you've already gotten it once and all of that. But um, can you maybe compare the MERS, the SARS, to what we know right now about the um, current, the, the novel by, uh, coronavirus? Sure. I mean, I think the main difference for people to know is that SARS and MERS both had much more severe disease than this current virus. So that's important for two reasons. First, obviously, it was much more deadly. Second, and this is sort of the flip side of that argument, is it was much easier to identify cases. So it was obvious when someone was sick. And with those viruses, 
people were not likely to transmit infection until they had already been sick for about two to three days. So it was feasible to think about isolating those infections and containing the virus that way. Just to give you a sense of scale, we've already seen over 150,000 cases of this new coronavirus, COVID-19. But overall, over the entire SARS epidemic, there were only about 8,000 cases of SARS and only about 2,500 cases of MERS. So that gives you a sense of the vast differences in scale. But on the flip side, those viruses were much more deadly. I think about one in three people with MERS ended up dying and about one in 10 with SARS died. And so notably what we're seeing right now is a lot less severe for COVID-19. Okay. So, so one of the things that you just mentioned uh, regarding the MERS and SARS, because the coronavirus, Corona is what I guess what that stands for is crown. So if you look at the coronavirus under a microscope, it sort of looks like a crown. Um, I think, I think that's what I heard, but more importantly, tell me what the real difference is between them in terms of the, the molecular makeup. Is that even a thing? <laughs> no, that's a great question. And so I think it's important to note that the coronavirus that we're talking about broadly is a family of a lot of different viruses. Mm-hmm. And so they're completely different viruses with different sort of origin stories and different animal reservoirs in all of these cases. Mm-hmm. So I can't speak to the details of the biology behind what makes them different, but it's important to know that they're different viruses. And that's why, for example, that the fact that the virus that causes COVID-19, which is technically referred to as SARS-CoV-2, is a virus that no one's immune system has ever seen before. And so even though our immune systems have seen this this typical coronavirus or one of the four or five strains that circulates every year causing the common cold, this virus is totally new, so that's why everyone in the population is susceptible. Okay, so that's where that's a perfect question because that's why we have like 160 whatever thousand cases is because, first of all, we don't have any immunity to it because there's not a vaccine, right? So right. what we see is that, and, 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 you know, this is just what I've read. That's why we have you here. Cause I mean, I can get lost on the internet looking at different pages. And so, you know, I look at the CDC, I look at, uh, I look at, um, the world health organization. I look at John Hopkins, Hopkins, um, website, but I try to keep it, you know, close to the vest because you, you, there's a lot of misinformation out there. So when we look at the contagiousness of this and the fact that there is no vaccine, it's never been. Uh, found in humans. That's what the novel means, which means new. So I'm not sure we have to, why we have to complicate things so much, but novel means new. So new coronavirus. Um, you just said that there's a lot of different coronaviruses and bats is one of the places that this is found. I know there's teams of people that try to go in and um, extract different um, viruses from these different animals to find out what pathogen it is to make sure that there's not this secret pathogen out there that would wipe out Humanity. I know that sounds extreme, but this particular one, um, there's people that are getting it, not knowing that they got it, not knowing that they even have it. And that's one of the things that so I'm, I'm just amazed by is that like people aren't really exhibiting symptoms, maybe ever if it's mild enough. But for the first 14 days during that incubation period, I guess the incubation period is two to 14 days, right? Right. So a study just came out 
in a scientific journal that showed that the median incubation period was five days. And I think it ranged, as you said, from two to 14 days, but almost everyone who was going to show symptoms showed symptoms by 12 days after being exposed. Are people more contagious? Are people more contagious when they're showing the symptoms or when they're asymptomatic? It's known that people are contagious when they're showing symptoms. There's still a lot of ongoing research about how contagious people are when they're asymptomatic. And obviously that right now is the important question because as you said, people might be out in the community not knowing that they're infected, interacting with friends and loved ones and people in some of these vulnerable groups like people over age 65 or with underlying conditions. And if they're able to transmit disease to those people, that's putting their health at in jeopardy. Right. So we we kind of sound like me and you, I'm saying probably more me, but the, the general medical community or the politicians or whoever it is that's saying do social distancing. A lot of times when, if you, if you step outside of the medical world or maybe common sense, I don't want to say that, but I can see where people might think, man, these are crazy people. They're just trying to create fear so that people go and stay at home. I'm not sure why they would want to do that, but the fact is I can see where people would think that, but you really have to take time to unpack it because Um, Talk a little bit about what flattening the curve means, because that's really what the goal is here, because we'll be able to overcome this. But if but if history repeats itself, we can look at Italy, we can look at China, Spain, France, some of these other countries that are now beginning to deal with trying to flatten the curve after there was a big spike there. Talk a little bit about maybe that whole little thing that I just said. That's a great point. And I think this is the message that the public health community is trying to push out there at the moment. And that's that even though this disease might be mild in some cases, some people might not show symptoms, or if you're young and healthy, it might manifest as only, I'm putting that only in quotes because the flu is terrible, but only a case of the flu. It's important to remember that vulnerable people, such as those over age 65 or those with underlying conditions are likely to be very severely affected by this disease. There are some estimates that about 20% of everyone who gets this disease requires hospitalization. And you can imagine the rate is much higher in older people or those with these chronic conditions. And so when we talk about flattening the curve, what we mean is we want to slow down the rate of new infections to the extent that the health, health system can accommodate all of the people it needs to in hospitals. If you think about this as a set number of cases that are going to occur due to this disease being introduced into a completely susceptible population, we can either experience those infections over a very painful few month period where the hospitals get completely overwhelmed and run out of vital resources like hospital beds and ventilators, or we can spread those cases out so that they come in at a manageable rate. Well, that's perfect. So that really lays out the story there. And so I want to think and for to sort of hit that point home a little further in terms of a real world situation. So you have New York as an example, and Governor Cuomo has been very outspoken about what's going on. And there is 53,000 hospital beds in New York state, including 3,200 intensive care unit beds. Okay. Let's think that through. That when you say it like that, it's like they have no beds if, to deal with the pandemic. 
they have no beds because you have how many people in New York? I mean, I don't even know the number, but just taking into account, because I don't know that we know yet. And this is, I guess, let's lead into this question and then we can lead into that question, which is, do we know yet? I know there's estimates. I, I was reading a report last night that someone sent me about what the anticipated, um, I guess, infection rate will be for the U.S. population. Is that even known yet? I don't think we know, but at this point, it depends dramatically on what we choose to do as a country with regard to social distancing, limiting travel, canceling large events. Mm. I think there are some worst case scenarios floating around that um, came That's out the 70%. in an article in New York Times. Is that the 70% right. number? Yeah. I, I think so. And then there are obviously many other possible scenarios that could happen under various mitigation strategies. Mm, so okay. the short answer is we don't know. And we're still yeah. somewhat designing our own fate with that. Wow. Okay. That was very clear. So 50%, 70%, 30%, whatever the number is, we then could apply that number to specific municipalities or specific states or specific cities. However you want to draw the parallel, you take the population times that number, and then you take on the high end 20% because that's the people that are hospitalized. So let's just use a round number. If you have a thousand people and let's say 50% of those people are infected. So that means that you have 500 people. So if you have on the high end, 20% of that, that means a hundred people would need a hospital, um, ice or would need a hospital bed. So that probably wasn't clear, but the bottom line is you're going to need a lot of hospital beds if we don't adopt the very, very, very aggressive uh, mitigation strategies that the um, CDC has put forward, which is canceling events under or above 50 and social distancing, which means when you can, non-essential travel outside of your home needs to be eliminated for this period of time whether that be four weeks, I mean, very aggressively eight weeks. So like you just mentioned, we're kind of riding our own fate based upon how we react behaviorally and whether we're willing to do what it is that people are suggesting. And I think that that's where it's become like, well, you're trying to control me. You're trying to tell me what I need to do. But really what we're trying to do as a people who understand it is we're trying to help your parents, your grandparents, you know? So d does that all kind of make sense? Exactly. I think that's the message that needs to get out there is that it might not be as important for your own health if you're a young, healthy person, although those people can still get seriously ill. Mm -hmm. But this so act of social distancing is something we do to protect our loved ones who are in these more vulnerable groups and really save lives. Absolutely. So let's move to the next topic. Well, before I do move to that topic, I do want to um, let people know how they can connect with us. And that is the housinghour.com. You can go there to find out more information about the show, share this show with friends and family, um, learn more about who Jess is. Um, and then uh, certainly uh, please pay attention to our social media. It's the, the housinghour.com and at uh, had the housing hours on Twitter. So another thing I wanted to kind of cover is, um, and it relates to the tests because I know that there's a lot of people that are saying, you know, there's not enough testing. And I, I would agree with that. Um, 
I've been monitoring very closely my home state here, Tennessee. I've been very closely monitoring the Tennessee Department of Health's Twitter page or whatever, because that's where they post the information and that's where it comes. So like, for instance, this is just a microcosm of a bigger picture, because I think this is what's happening in most states or at least something similar. So for instance, yesterday, March 15th, they released the number that there was 39 confirmed cases. Well, everybody's, well, there's 39 confirmed cases. I mean, I know 50 people that's gotten the flu in the, in the season. So there's that, but 39. Now that was, that was with only 174 tests. So we're talking about a very, very small number of tests that came up with that 39 confirmed number. Now, the day before that, there was 32 cases. So it increased by seven, only seven. And I was thinking, well, okay, so how many tests were there? A thousand. And so when I dug a little deeper, that was only with 30 tests. So to let everyone know, that I believe what you'll see is an incredible ramp up once these tests get into the hands of the people that need them and these private uh, companies that President Trump has partnered with and also being able to get these tests in, into the hands of like the healthcare professionals and not have to send it to the CDC, not have to wait for four days. We can be on the four-hour turnaround time, which is what China had. So, Jess, talk a little bit about the tests and do we need to have does why do more people need to be tested that's the first question and then also if you want to comment on what i said well i think it's this again is an important message that just because your state only has 39 confirmed cases you should not take that as evidence that this there are only 39 cases in the state i think the testing criteria to this point have been fairly stringent which is why you are seeing such high positivity rates, such that people are more likely to be tested if they have symptoms and until recently also had to have some sort of either known travel to an affected region or known contact with an, an infected person. Right. And so that explains, you wouldn't expect to see that same proportion positive in the general population at this point. But I think it's, it's important to realize that as those criteria are loosened, and more tests become available, we're going to see the numbers rise. Hopefully, as the number of tests rise dramatically, we will expect to see more positive cases, and that should not be a cause for alarm. But at this point, I would advise everyone to act as though there's community transmission going on in your neighborhood and that people might be infected and not know it because to this date, they haven't had the opportunity to be tested. Well, I want to drill down on something real quick because... You just mentioned that you should expect once these tests do, in fact, make it into the hands of the people who, and, and not only just the tests, but also the, however it is that medical doctors, emergency room doctors, primary care doctors communicate with the CDC. I imagine it's very much like we communicated our, our employer. Um, you know, we have a conference call or we have a communication, an email, maybe whatever, how, however that works. But I imagine it's something like this. Okay, folks, here I know that this is the questionnaires you as an emergency room doctor had to check off. You know, do they, have they been to, to out of the country within the last 30 days? Maybe that was one that what triggered it. You know, do they have a fever? Do they have a cough? Do they, ha, you know, do they have some of these symptoms? But now, folks, we're going to change gears. I'm still writing as the CDC in my pretend voice here. We're changing gears and we're going to make it much easier 
for people to come in and get tested. Is that kind of what's happening kind of right now across the country? Exactly. That's what's happening. And to compound that issue, as you mentioned earlier, we're also starting to see testing by private labs and places that are not the CDC and not even the state or local health departments. And so for this reason, we are going to see more cases and those will get reported to the CDC because COVID-19 is a reportable illness. Mm -hmm. But the total number of tests conducted might be a hard number to figure out given the vast number of people now able to conduct testing. Right. So if you're, if you're going to, if you went to the emergency room yesterday, if you're listening to this or the day before sometime before, cause today is March 16th. So the podcast out whenever you listen to it. So if you went to the emergency room and you had a fever and you had um, a cough and you had the sim- you were showing the symptoms that we have been hearing from the CDC on their website, and you go there and you can see what the symptoms are, you know, the sore throat and the different things. You can look at that. Then yesterday, you know, if you had not traveled to one of these countries or if you had not been in contact with someone who was a confirmed coronavirus, which in Knox County, which is where I live, there would be virtually in my mind, zero people because there was one guy who was quarantined and he was one of the first cases and, you know, nobody's been in contact with him. Why? Because he's been quarantined. But then there's a lot of other people that have traveled to Nashville. They've went down there to Tootsie's, which is a very well-known uh, nightclub right there on Broadway. And we know that Davidson County and we know that Williamson County both, I mean, they have 14 and 17 cases. And I'm looking forward to three o'clock today when the new numbers come out, but 17 and 14 cases. So if you had other people that even last night, Tootsie's, which is unbelievable. You had people there and you know that there was people that had been exposed to it. So they travel back to Knoxville. Guess what? They travel back to Knoxville. They've now have, have that, that virus. They don't know it. They then go, they go see their, their mom. They go see their dad. They go see their cousin. They go see their brother. They go to their job today. They've, they don't know anything about this because they're just, they're sort of in their own world and they don't care what the medical profession, I mean, I hate to be harsh like this, but cause they don't get it. They say, I'm fine. I I've, I've already taken the flu shot, but then what happens? They come here. We know it's very contagious because it's never been in humans before. There is no vaccine for it. There's no antiviral drugs and the people who are at the highest at risk, you're giving it to them because you're a, uh, you don't have symptoms. Is that all actually accurate pretty much? Yeah, I'll just add some detail to that, that the scientists so far have estimated that someone who has COVID-19 is likely to infect between two and four additional people Mm. in a completely susceptible population, which is pretty much what we're in right now. And so, of course, all of these strategies we're hearing about social distancing, so cancel non-essential travel, don't go to bars and nightclubs, uh, wash your hands, don't shake hands, stay six feet away from people, closing schools. All of those strategies are designed to decrease that number that someone can infect who is already infected. Right. And while we don't know how infectious the disease is among people who are asymptomatic, like, for example, right. most children who get this disease are asymptomatic, we do know that once people start to experience symptoms, those might be so mild they don't know immediately that it's COVID-19. So they might right. continue throughout their day. And so this is 
another plug that it's really important, even if you're experiencing mild symptoms, if you feel ill at all, to self-isolate, to stay home and to avoid contact with others, especially those in vulnerable groups. Oh, that's a good point. And, and I, I did say that if they're asymptomatic, that they, because we don't actually, the, I guess the evidence isn't in just yet on that, even though I think there was some prima facie evidence from China in some other areas. Um, I guess that is a good point, you know, to make because, I mean, first of all, I'm not a medical doctor. I'm not an epidemiologist. I'm not a virologist or however you say that. I'm just a guy who is consuming a bunch of information and I'm trying to learn. And why am I trying to learn from people like Jess and the other people I've spoke to and the different, because um, I've been told that this is a big deal by the CDC and by people like Jess. So, and so that's why, I, I mean, my family is very important to me. The people in my community are very important to me. And, you know, there's probably a lot of people that are listening to this, Jess, and I don't want to continue to beat a dead horse here, but you have a lot of people who are, are just not understanding why this is such a big deal. But I want to just wait, make one last point on this, and that is relating to um, the flu. And people say, well, there's that many people that are dying of the flu every year. And why do we need to worry about this? And even though we've already made the point, I want to finish with this segment with that, with this point, because that's even with a vaccine. That's even there. There's that many people dying of the flu with a vaccine. And the flu has a 0.1% mortality rate. Is that about correct? That's right. Okay. And this, we don't know, but there's, some evidence that suggests that the mortality rate of this, I'm talking about across all age groups, it could be as low as what we think one, but maybe as high as two. I don't know. Is the numbers in the, on that? The current WHO estimate of the mortality rate is 3.4%, but everyone expects that number to come down right. as the epidemic progresses. Because you have more people confirmed more confirmed right, cases because it might be that the more the, only the most severe cases at the beginning were confirmed and as mm -hmm. we start to find less and less severe cases hopefully that number will decrease but people tend to think that it's between one and four percent yeah right so so my point there is that if it's 0.1 percent with the flu and the reason it's 0.1 percent folks and and okay so correct me if i'm wrong here the reason it's so 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 low is because, I mean, in terms of the whole overall pop population, is because we have antiviral drugs and four, as a matter of fact, for the influenza, and also we have a vaccine. Is that correct? Right, that's correct. So that's, is that why the, it's so low? I mean, you're saying correct, okay. Um, so we need to get a vaccine. Now, how long do you anticipate, um, I know that you can't, you know, answer this, but for sure, but what's typical of a new virus for a vaccine? I mean, I know it's not days or even weeks or even months. No, I think that an optimistic scenario, unless there's some dramatic change in how these things are done, but an optimistic scenario would be at least a year for vaccine development because of all of the ethical issues with how you test the vaccine and how you make sure it's both effective and safe. Yeah, right, right. Well, and, and there's probably, I mean, things are ever changing in this situation. So, you know, th there was a report that I read something along the lines of, you know, the, there's vaccine that may go to clinical trials, but clinical trial trials, how do you define that? That's really, I guess, the big question. So 
it could be it could be a long time. So in the meantime, we have to practice some mitigation strategies and just pray that um, that this is we don't know if it's seasonal yet, even yet, do we? The coronavirus. We're not sure how it will transmit in warmer weather. What we do know is that epidemics tend to have a cyclic property, right? So as mm-hmm. more and more of the population becomes immune, transmission will be harder. And we expect, as we're seeing in China now, some sort of um, natural peak and decline in cases, which we can accelerate if we do these measures we've discussed. Right. So, and so the last thing that I want to ask is in relation to this is, um, is there, is there a chance that as a society, we become the herd immunity mentality, but don't you, do you have to have a vaccine before you get to the herd immunity? The vaccine certainly helps and would get us there a lot faster. But in the absence of a vaccine, we would expect within a few years to start to see some sort of herd immunity. So say at this year, about one third of the population becomes infected with this disease. Mm-hmm. We fully expect after the first wave of this epidemic that it will continue to stay with us, just like the seasonal coronaviruses we have now. Mm-hmm. And after a few waves of this epidemic, which would be less and less painful each time, we'd expect it, most people over, you know, older people, most adults oh. to have developed some sort of immunity to this. Okay. Well, that's, that is promising, but it certainly does um, for all of us to raise the needs for us to, to be cautious and to practice social distancing, obviously washing hands, making sure that you don't forget your thumbs, do it for 20 seconds, make sure that you're not touching your eyes, your nose or your mouth, not touching other people, making sure that you're cleaning surfaces continuously, making sure that you look like the germ freak, you know, that's what we have to do. And we also have to really pretend as though we may be contagious, even though we are not, or we may not be, because if we take into our mind, just that mindset that, Hey, I could, I'm, I'm contagious. Well, then you start to remember things, you start to think about your hygiene and so forth. So with that being said, Jess Edwards, who is with the University of North Carolina, um, and she is an epidemiologist, and uh, we thank her so much for coming on the show. Jess, thank you so much. Thanks, Kevin.